Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So how many countries in sub-Saharan Africa? 49. So how is it possible to keep up? I've had the fortune of working first West African issues, and then I moved to East African and Central African. So I've, I've sort of moved around enough, and then my academic work was on Southern. Uh, but you have to go into these meetings and present to policymakers real insights on these countries that they have made worked and traveled to together. So it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong challenge. The way that I think about Africa right now is in three ways. First, the future is African, demographically. The continent will double in size. It will go from 1.2 billion people to 2.4 billion people by 2050. That means a quarter of the world's population will be African. And so every global problem is going to have an African dimension to it. Two, Africa's problems and opportunities don't stop at the water's edge. What happens in Africa changes the way the world works. African migration crisis changed European politics. The Ebola crisis changed the way we think about global health security. The uh, piracy off the coast of Horn of Africa changed actually how maritime commerce worked and the shipping industry. Finally, our allies and adversaries understand those first two points really well. And I think they understand it probably better than we do. We're seeing this dramatic increase uh, in engagement by allies and adversaries. Between 2010 and 2015, 150 foreign embassies were built in sub-Saharan Africa. Trade is up for most countries. 65 countries have increased their trade. And military bases all across Africa, Indian Ocean, the Horn of Africa, and Western Sahara, uh, sorry, Western Africa. So I, I think that we have to recognize that if we are not there to shape what's happening on the continent, to referee Uh, to make sure that we're not blocked out by opportunities is going to affect our national interests. Judd Devermont is one of our country's leading experts on Africa. He is currently the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank here in Washington, D.C. Previously, Judd served as the National Intelligence Officer for Africa 
as CIA senior analyst on Africa and as the director for Somalia, Nigeria, the Sahel, and the African Union at the National Security Council. I recently caught up with Judd to talk about why Africa is important to our national security. We'll be right back after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Judd, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters. Thank you for having me. So maybe the place to start is a little bit about your career, and I'd be interested in a couple things. One is your interest in Africa. Where did that come from? And then your interest in CIA, where did that come from? And how did you end up there? I mean, why did someone who grew up in Southern California end up spending a career working <laughs> Africa? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I love history. Um, and in high school, all you can take is U.S. and European. And when I got to college, I just went all over the world, Latin America and East Southeast Asia, East Asia. But I took a class on the Arab Revolt, actually. Um, and this seminar class was so incredible, the way in which they talked about how Arab nationalism and agency hit with um, geopolitics. Mm. And so I kind of knew that's what I wanted, but I still didn't know what the region was. I didn't really want to go in the Middle East. And one day, I didn't go to class. I never missed class. But one day I decided with a friend, we walked around campus and we got in front of a study abroad kiosk and only two pamphlets jumped at me, Ghana and South Africa. Mm. And I don't know, Michael, it was, it was this moment where I could see my entire future. I knew all of those things that I liked in that Arab Spring course or Arab Revolt course were going to be in Africa. I moved to South Africa. I did a year there and I never looked back. And what was that year in South Africa like? It was incredible. I studied at the University of Cape Town. Uh, I traveled all over Southern Africa. I lived in the dorms and have great South African friends. And I just found on the continent, history, I had a professor who said, history lies heavy yeah, on, the, on the continent's present and future. And so it was everything that I wanted, and it's been incredibly fulfilling 20 years now. Yeah, for those listeners who haven't been to Cape Town, I've been there twice. You are just absolutely surrounded by history. Yeah, It is amazing. And then the CIA. How did you end up at the CIA? This is kind of a funny story. It actually has a lot to do with a Tom Clancy novel, but not because I related to Jack Ryan. I mean, yeah, he's an analyst, but... The guy is on an operation almost immediately, right? Right, right? I mean, he's never at his desk. And so I wanted, as I said, a job. I loved history. I wanted a job that had a lot to do with history. And in this one Jack Ryan novel, he's not even in the agency anymore. He's like the national security advisor. And he calls up the Department of State to talk to their senior desk officer for Japan. And the way I remember this passage, I tried to find it recently and I can't, the senior desk officer Japan knows everything about history, politics, culture, economics. And I said, I'm going to be a desk officer. That's my goal. Applied for the State Department uh, as an intern. I got in. I was going to be the Bureau of West African Affairs. And just before I left for Washington, my father grabs the intern guidebook that I had and says, CIA, you should apply to CIA. Mm. 
I said, listen, Pops. Why did he say that? I think he he loves the operation. He continues to tell me he could be a great operational officer. He's 77 years old. But uh, uh, he was really fascinated with the, the lifestyle, and he encouraged me to apply. I said, I'm going to be a desk officer. I don't need this. And he said, you should apply. So I did. I get to Washington. First day at the Department of State. It's like two hours paperwork. They say, come back tomorrow for your first full day. It's September 11, 2001. Wow. That was my first day working for the U.S. government. And wow. I, I know where you were. Um, and I know you were briefing the president. And I was just an intern in West Africa. But I, I felt a sense of privilege that I was there. It was a great experience. And a couple weeks later, CIA calls and says, we'd like to offer you a grad fellowship. So now I'm at a place where CIA seems really interesting. My fantasy desk officer job seems really interesting. I'm, I'm very lucky to sort of go to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, work in our embassy for a longer internship. And I meet an analyst from INR, State Department's analytic wing. She's retired now, but she was phenomenal. I mean, she, didn't even, she wasn't even the senior analyst for this country. And she had everyone you know, in the palm of her hands. And that was the moment that I said, I know exactly where I want to go. It's going to be an analyst. So in layman's terms, can you tell folks what it's like to be an analyst at CIA? Yeah, I, I, you know, there wasn't a day that I didn't have a smile on my face walking in that door. I came in on the weekends and not because I had a tasker, but because I had a paper that I really wanted to write uh, or research. But every day you are immersed in all this information about the country or issue that you work you have these great colleagues that you are um, engaging with. Every morning is a nine o'clock morning meeting and you sort of report up what's interesting, what's happened, what should we be writing about, what does senior policymakers need to know. And then you spend your day writing those papers or going to briefings or spending time around a table and trying to figure out what's going to happen next and why does it matter. So you become the national intelligence officer for Africa. What does that mean? What does a national intelligence officer do? It's the best job I've ever had, Michael. It, um, it really has three functions. You are the U.S. government's senior analyst on a country or an issue. Uh, you represent all the 17 intelligence agencies at all policy meetings. Uh, CIA might have a seat at the table, but I represented the DNI, uh, and I would do the briefing that usually kicked off these policy meetings. So that was sort of the one of the responsibilities. The second is that I oversaw all of the strategic analysis that the intelligence community did, national intelligence estimates, etc. CIA may have their view, DIA may have their view, but what was written under my auspices was a community view. And sometimes the community may disagree and we would represent that as well. And then the third part of the job, which I really loved, which is I felt responsible for helping to develop our analytic cadre. I would host conferences, I would bring people together, I would. Um, I used to have a product of the month that I would send out so people could see ac- uh, analytic excellence. That's great. It was a fantastic job. Three years, great. And you also served on the NSC staff yes. on Africa. Talk about that. Uh, I worked uh, in the Obama administration. I was the director for Nigeria, Somalia, the Sahel, and the African Union. These countries aren't next to each other, but my boss just said, all of your experiences, we're just going to put them into one account. And my job was to... Uh, coordinate U.S. policy. We, uh, it was a, a pretty interesting time. We ended up recognizing the government of Somalia for the first time since 1991. We, I contributed to the Obama strategy uh, towards Africa. And my job was really to make sure that we were all marching in the same direction. And when there were tough decisions that we, I wrote all the papers for the deputies committees and, and other senior meetings so that we could figure out where we're going to go. 
So how many countries in sub-Saharan Africa? 49. So how is it possible to keep up with what's going on in 49 countries? You know, when I was telling you the story about why I joined, uh, what I wanted to be, it was to be an expert. And I think it's taken me to this point in my career to realize I may never be an expert on 49 countries. Um, So you do a lot of triaging, you work with a lot of smart people, but I find each and every one of them fascinating. And uh, I've had the fortune of working first West African issues, and then I moved to East African and Central African. So I've I've sort of moved around enough, and then my academic work was on Southern. Uh, but uh, you have to go into these meetings and present to policymakers real insights on these countries that they have made worked and traveled to together. So it's it's a it's a lifelong challenge. And this is a big place, right? The yeah. continent is huge. Yeah, I have a map next to me yeah. right now because. Yeah. I have to reference it. And just the Congo itself is roughly the size of half the United States, right? Yes, right, yeah. So massive continent. Massive continent. So this great job that you had in the intelligence community, you left yeah. in 2018. Why? Well, I always think it's important to say it has nothing to do with politics. Um, I spent 18 months as the national intelligence officer under President Obama and then 18 months under President Trump. And I actually really liked working and trying to support this administration at forced me to challenge my assumptions. So you were the national intelligence officer during the Trump... Yes, for 18 months. And um, I had to meet them where they were, which they didn't have the kind of depth that President Obama and his team had on Africa, and they have had different views. And I really enjoyed trying to find ways to communicate the continent's significance and why it matters. Um, But the NIO job was the pinnacle mm-hmm. for me. That's the best job you could have in my career service. I thought maybe in 30 years I would be able to get to that point. And I was about halfway through my career and I didn't see a job uh, in the community that would sort of push me forward. I, I wanted a new challenge. And uh, quite honestly, I wanted to do policy again. I really liked being at the NSC and I wanted to think about what our policy should be. And, you know, one of the things you can't do as an analyst is be policy prescriptive. Right. So it just seemed like a time to to leave at a high point at the, you know, this incredible position to engage with new people and to think about where we should go next. And at CSIS, you're able to do both the analysis and policy, yeah. right? It's actually a lot like my old job. I read a lot. I write a lot. Um, but then I have recommendations on what I think we should do. Plus, I get to do cool things like I have a podcast. That's fun. I talk to journalists. Podcasts are the best. Podcasts are the best. <laughs> I, you know, I, I travel a lot. I meet with African and European and other government officials and get to interact with them in a different way. And i speaking for myself, not for my government. So Intelligence Matters has now been around for a couple of years. We have never had anybody on talking about Africa. So I think the key question is, how does Africa matter to our national security and how much does it matter? Yeah. How do you answer that question? This is a difficult question because as we've just talked about, there's 49 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, 55, uh, sorry, 54 if you uh, include the North African countries, 55 if you're the African Union because you include Western Sahara. Um, And as our interests evolve, the way we look look at Africa changes. And if you'll just allow me a quick tangent, because this is very nerdy, but if it's going to be successful, it's going to be successful on Intelligence Matters. Well, you're talking to a nerd, so yes. we're in good shape here. Um, I teach a class at George Washington University on the history of U.S. intelligence analysis in Africa. And I found this piece, a national intelligence estimate from 1971 in East Africa. 
there's a line in it. Maybe you've seen this before. I've never seen it before. The analyst said, the significance for the United States of developments in East Africa depends on what the U.S. says is important. Mm. Right? It sounds circular, but mm-hmm. it's, it's true. And then mm-hmm. the analysts go further than that, right? They say, if you're going to be very, look at this in a narrow perspective, we don't have many interests. 1971 in East Africa. There's not a product that we get there. There's, we don't have economic investment. But if you step back, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you step back, these are countries that could be models, open societies. These leaders have influence, uh, both in Africa and globally. And if they should go south, if there should be instability, it would affect our interests. And I, I like to use that story because it tells me don't undersell and don't oversell. Mm. Look at all the angles and uh, present all the arguments. So the way that I think about Africa right now is in three ways. First, the future is African, demographically. The continent will double in size. It will go from 1.2 billion people to 2.4 billion people by 2050. That means a quarter of the world's population will be African. Mm. Nigeria is going to be larger than the United States. Fastest growth by any continent? Yeah, fastest growth, youngest continent. Nigeria is going to be the third largest country in the world. It's going to surpass us. And so every global problem is going to have an African dimension to it. Is, is glo- what, are we, what is going to be the norms around internet privacy? How are we going to deal with climate change? There's going to be an African component to that, and we need to be mindful of that. Two, and this has been something that I've learned in my career, Africa's problems and opportunities don't stop at the water's edge. Mm. What happens in Africa changes the way the world works. African migration crisis changed European politics. The Ebola crisis changed the way we think about global health security. You may remember the uh, piracy off the coast of Horn of Africa. It changed actually how maritime commerce worked and the shipping industry. So I think that it's really important to be mindful of these events in these different countries because they do change the way people uh, and and systems work. And then finally, our allies and adversaries understand those first two points really well. And I think they understand it probably better than we do. We're seeing this dramatic increase uh, in engagement by allies and adversaries between 2010 and 2015 150 foreign embassies were built in sub-saharan africa trade is up for most countries 65 countries have increased their trade and military bases all across africa indian ocean the horn of africa and western sahara uh, sorry western africa so I, i think that we have to recognize that if we are not there to shape what's happening on the continent to referee Uh, to make sure that we're not blocked out by opportunities. It's going to affect our national interest. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Judd Devermont. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So... Talk a little bit about kind of the state of Africa today. What's going on there? What are the challenges these countries face? And what are some of the positive things that are happening? Chinua Achebe, uh, the author of Things Fall Apart, said 
talking about Nigeria, the problem with Nigeria's leadership. And I think for many of these countries, leadership and governance and sort of the economic problems that flow from that are still probably the biggest challenges these countries face. And um, there is instability. It's true, it's true of a lot of countries. It's true of a lot of countries, right? <laughs> Uh, but, you know, instability in, in the Sahel, um, challenges in eastern Congo with Ebola. Um, we have been talking for so many years about urbanization and greater connectivity and youth bulge and climate change. And I would argue right now those things are really coming together. Governance has been hard in Africa, but it's become really complex. And I think some governments um, are failing in the way they respond to that. And I think it's making conflicts more protracted, more deadly. And I think it is, is, it is denying people the ability to, to live their lives. And these all, as we said, have all these effects for us, but there's some good news stories. And I always like the opportunity to talk about good news because, you know, the U S media on Africa, it's all negative. I mean, it's disproportionately negative and Africa is doing some things that are really interesting. They're going in a different direction than the rest of the world in some cases. So while there's this global recession in democracy, uh, there's people who have less confidence in it. Africans really strongly believe in democracy. 68% of Africans support democratic principles. In some countries, it's like in the 80s. There's been 28 transfers of power since 2015. Peaceful, more than half. That's historic. While the rest of the world has become protectionist and imposing tariffs, Africans have created a new continental trade uh, arrangement. It's the largest trading bloc since the WTO was founded. And finally, while the rest of the world, or at least the United States, is thinking about pulling out, the Africans are stepping up, and they're working together to deal with transnational threats. So I think those are really good stories. And just the last one that I think maybe your audience hasn't thought about that is really exciting to me is African soft power. Africa, Africans are changing our global entertainment and cultural trends in ways that I think are unprecedented. Our music, our films, um, our sports, Africans are shaping it and at the lead. And I'd love to see African governments take advantage of their soft power. And I'd like to think of ways that our government could be more effective in navigating it. So I find this cutting against the trend on democracy and trade to be fascinating. Yeah. Why is that happening? Well, let me start with trade first. For the Africans, their economies are too fractured, fragmented. No one's going to invest in the small little Gambia, which, uh, you know, just covers that, the river in, within Senegal. Uh, intertrade within Africa has been historically low. And the Africans, uh, under the leadership of Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, realized that if they were going to increase intra-African trade, if they were going to become a a better investment destination, they had to remove some of these barriers. So I think that's mm. uh, what explains the integration, economic integration. On the democracy side, I think it's a number of trend lines that are coming together. First, as I said, still strong support for democracy. But I think there are new ways in which people can organize and mobilize as changed politics in Africa. As it's become more urban, um, as it's been able... You've been able to communicate with each other in new ways through, through you know, telephones and mobile phones. Um, we're seeing more protests on the streets. Uh, we're seeing more people push uh, for change. And so whether it's the uprising in Sudan that ended President al-Bashir's rule, or it is the remarkable changes in Ethiopia, or just increasingly 
cyclical transfers of power, I think a number of things are happening that really cut against the grain of both their global trends, as you've talked about, but even the way people think about sub-Saharan Africa, because you can always pull out the autocracy or the democracy that is in recession or is that, that is regressing. But if you step back and look at the picture, it's actually very exciting. And, and what I tell people is let's not look at this about democracy is up or down. Let's look at the, the forces that have sort of created a status quo around governance are changing. And I expect a lot of volatility. We'll continue to have these really big surprises and we'll have these setbacks. But I think that people the governed and the governing are working on what are the new rules of the game. And so it's a really interesting time right now. Are there countries, and I'm thinking of South Africa, I'm thinking of Nigeria, I'm thinking of Kenya, are there countries that kind of lead the continent? Or is that not a right way of thinking about it? U.S. policy has always thought about sort of anchor states. Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Um, They have outsized military forces. They are loud and vocal globally and on the continent. I don't think that is as true as much anymore. Uh, Nigeria has been dealing with its own internal security problems. Their president uh, isn't the most dynamic. Ethiopia is in the middle of a transition. South Africa is weighed down by economic problems. And so what I think you've seen is a democratization of leadership in Africa. Um, Different countries step up at different times. So there's not one single voice. You can't, as you did under the Bush administration or under the Obama administration, say, well, Nigeria is going to carry our water in West Africa. It just doesn't happen anymore. You've got to, I think, build these coalitions with the Senegals and the Ghanas in in some regions and then still rely on South Africa and Kenya for other things. Judd, you mentioned earlier that other countries are paying attention to what's going on in Africa and seeing some of the opportunities that you talked about. So can you talk a little about what third-party actors, namely China and Russia, are doing on the continent? And if there's others, too, that are interesting, please, please mention those. Yeah, let me start with China. I think it's really important to say that China poses some threats to the U.S. and what it's doing. But I've been really um, disappointed with our policy because we haven't been precise about what we're trying to counter. With China? With China. Uh, we're, we, we seem to want to focus on blocking them at every turn in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, I don't know, it's like, it's like Mad Libs right now. It's, we are worried about activity, fill in the blank, in country, fill in the blank, because of China. And I don't even think we have articulated, at least publicly, what is the end state that we're looking for. It's that because of China that is the driver, right? Yeah, it's the because of China. And I think that if we are going to be effective at managing what China is doing in sub-Saharan Africa, we need to be specific about what the threats are. So I would say, first of all, it's Chinese investment in critical infrastructure ports. We just did a paper at CSIS, 46 ports that Chinese are invested in, operating or building in Africa. Uh, I worry about... And is that a, that's a risk because... That's a risk because it can limit our mobility, our access to these countries, our ability for our military, our ability for our private sector to get involved. And so I... And a Chinese port could eventually become a Chinese military base. Absolutely. That's what we saw in Djibouti. Right. So I, I worry about ports. I worry about cyber and telecoms. Uh, Chinese have built about 70% of Africa's 4G. They'll be, it'll be 100% of their 5G. Even satellites. Africa is starting to launch more and more satellites and Chinese are behind it. So we should focus on that. We should focus on uh, the people-to-people investment that China's doing. They're actually focusing on winning hearts and minds. They send more students, more African students study in China than they do in the United States. Mm. 
China has a program now where they're trying to provide satellite television to 10,000 villages. Uh, I think that's decadal, the impacts of that. But the, the thing in China, that, the thing about China that gets the most oxygen washing is economics. And here's where I think we need to be a lot more nuanced. China is addressing the needs of Africans. This is a region that has the lowest road and rail density in the world. They need between 130 and $170 billion of infrastructure investments per year, according to the African Development Bank. And China is doing a lot of that stuff. So what we need to do with China, in my view, is we can't tell Africans not to take the money because our private sector is not providing that. Right. China does $200 billion a year. We do 40. Uh, but we can help them to make sure the deals are better that they don't discriminate against the U.S. private sector, that they have the environmental regulation. So that's, that's how I think about, about China. So Russia. Yeah, Russia is an easier conversation than China, right? I don't need much nuance. There's very few upsides to what Russia's doing. Essentially, President Putin um, needs permissive environments for his companies to invest in um, after the sanctions were imposed on, on his government. And he's looking to score points. Africa is a place where he can work asymmetrically. They don't do much that helps African economies. They sell arms. It's, they're the largest seller, largest exporter of arms to Africa in the world. They are involved in some extractive industries and energy. Um, but often that comes with the side of corruption. What they're really doing is being fairly disruptive to politics. If they have an opportunity to side with an autocrat to provide technical expertise to help al-Bashir stay in power. That's what they'll do. So they are looking to sell themselves as returning to the glory days of the Soviet Union in Africa. And I think one of the things that we need to be careful about is not call them a great power. They're not. And I think when we call them a great power in Africa, we do Putin's bidding. They're a minnow, at least compared to us, the Chinese and, and Europe. So I think that we need to do a better job of isolating and not elevating Russia. We need to close some of the loops and make it permissive for their companies to work uh, in this area. And we need to be better at about gauging Africans to inoculate them uh, from these kind of uh, intrusions. Are there big European players? Yeah, France is still very involved. In fact, uh, President Macron just recently had a summit uh, where he talked about uh, what his government is doing on the Sahel. Uh, the UK uh, just had its first uh, UK-Africa investment summit. Malta, I don't know why I'm sharing this, but Malta just came out with their own Africa strategy, mm. just to give you a sense of the diversity mm. here. The, the other region that I, I, I should spend just a second talking about is the Gulf. The Gulf is very active in Africa, and Turkey is very active in Africa. Um, some, in some cases, that's not bad. They're doing some of the investments. Uh, DP Ports is investing in lots of places all over the continent. But what they've done that's been really negative is they've exported their political rifts to the region. And it's been problematic for Somalia and countries that don't want to choose between the UAE on one side and, and Qatar on the other side. Turkey's also been involved on the commerce, commercial side. Uh, they're doing some security assistance. Um, it's, it's, as I said, it's a crowded space. So extremism, jihadist extremism, seems to me to be growing, yeah. a growing problem on the continent. Is that right? And if so, why is it happening? And how much of a threat is it to Europe, to us? Yeah, I, we have to remember that Al-Qaeda's 
first major attack was in Africa, right, against our embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. But in the last couple decades, I think the problem has become more diverse, more geographically dispersed, and more deadly. There are Al-Qaeda and ISIS affiliates in West and East Africa and Southern Africa. Um, We are seeing unaligned extremist groups like Boko Haram. The number of attacks that they are doing are increasing, and I think the lethality of them are increasing. Primarily against local targets? Primarily against local targets. So in Nigeria, for example, according to a Council for Relations database, 35,000 people have died. Mm. Um, from Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa attacks or in conflict between those groups and the Nigerian military. In the Sahel, there's been a five-fold increase in deaths since 2016, 4,000 people. So it's primarily African targets. But I just testified in front of the House, and what I said is that it's probably a low probability that they're going to attack the U.S. direct, but I think it has some significant impacts for us. Um, First of all, it is endangers our citizens that live in Africa and our economic investments. There was an attack by Al-Shabaab earlier this year where they hit a uh, Kenyan military base where we train U.S., where the U.S. trains Kenyans and an American service person died and two contractors. They tried to attack our base in Somalia as well. And Americans have been caught up in the hotel attacks and the mall attacks. Uh, There's a group affiliated with ISIS right near a huge LNG fine in Mozambique. So it does threaten our interests, both the people who live in Africa, our facilities, and our economic investments. It also, as it continues to fester, entangles us in very expensive peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. So I think we need to be proactive when we think about that there's these secondary effects. And the last one is the more that extremism deepens and we are seen as less responsive, I think we lose the trust of our partners. I mean, Macron made a very clear pitch that he felt like the U.S. wasn't there helping. Our African partners have said the same. And and Russia, and particularly Russia, has rushed in to kind of find an opportunity here. So it's not a direct threat to the homeland, but a huge amount of sort of impacts downstream. What's behind the expansion of extremism on the continent? Yeah, I think partly it's a matter of, of governance and poor governance. And I think the the affiliates, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, have been sort of shopping for partners. Um, I try to be very careful about talking about ISIS and AQ as if they're drivers because we don't want to lose the local elements. It's just as helpful for the local extremist group to work with Al-Qaeda and ISIS as it is vice versa. So in a lot of cases, these groups existed already with local grievances, and then they took on the name. Yeah, they take on the name, and there's a back and forth between the the network and the local group, and not the network doesn't always get what it wants. Uh, But I think that those relationships have improved recruitment, have improved some of the tactical and strategic efforts, maybe even to help them improve like IEDs and other things. So I think poor governance... Uh, the attraction of networking with these groups. And then the most important part is government mistakes. There's a study by UNDP that looked at sort of extremists in Africa. And 71% of militants, former militants, said they joined an extremist group because a family member or friend was abused, detained by the security forces. So many of these African militaries make the wrong moves that push people further into the arms of the extremists. So those are a couple of the things that I would highlight is why we keep seeing this proliferation of these groups. 
you talked earlier about the expansion of democracy. You talked earlier about poor governance, extremism now being a consequence of that poor governance. Is there a correlation or causation between a state being more democratic and the quality of its governance in Africa? Yeah, you know, um, oh, sorry. I thought you were going to go in a different direction. I, I thought you were going to ask whether or not uh, correlation between democracy and um, extremist uh, activity, which there's actually some good evidence. On, on the democracy and the governance, I don't have the, the numbers, but my experience says that it depends, right? I mean, if you are a democratic state um, and you are being responsive to your citizens, then in theory, the governance will right. improve right. over time. But right. in some cases, uh, what happens is uh, because the democracy, uh, people are elected for patronage networks that you can actually use corruption to sort of focus on your own personal constituents as opposed to the betterment of other country, of, of your, your total population. So you really have to go case by case to talk about, you know, where is where are people, all people benefiting versus people who are sort of uh, in the circle of the president and the ruling party. So, John, I think this is a good place to switch to U.S. policy. And maybe we'll finish up on this. U.S. policy toward the region. How would you characterize it? What's working? What's not? If you could advise the president, what would you tell him? Yeah. You know, I think that our policymakers on Africa uh, are stuck with the challenge of being asked to do less with less. And it's taken them a while to, I think, figure out how they are going to push policy. And I think I want to give them some credit because it's taken a little while, but I've I've been happy with some of the results. But just to kind of go back a little bit, like in many other parts of the world, we didn't have policymakers on Africa for a long time in Washington or in the field. And so there was this period where it was really this unhappy marriage between Obama policies. They weren't sure whether or not they were going to dismantle and Trump policies that hadn't been constructed yet. And so you've got a, you've got a lot of contradictions, and then you had tweets and other sorts of you know, travel right. bans that made right. things worse. Right. Uh, and then President Trump's national security advisor John Bolton unveils the strategy, and this doesn't go off very well either because it's almost entirely about Russia and China. Uh, the Africans felt like they were not part of the strategy. Um, but in the last year, I've been um, pleased with the the bureaucracy finding a way. Uh, they launched uh, an economic initiative called Prosper Africa. It's got a lot to go uh, still, but it, uh, it's a good step, right? It's addressing some of the challenges that the U.S. private sector has had in investing in Africa. They've kind of found their footing on democracy and governance, which isn't really in any of the strategy documents or speeches, but sanctions now on election spoilers in Nigeria, on corrupt officials in Kenya, uh, on people who are stopping the peace process in, in South Sudan. So very, those are positive. The big question in year four is where is the DOD going? You may know that there's a proposal in front of Secretary of Defense Esper about withdrawing, right. maybe even completely, our troops in Africa, about 6,000 people. They already had reduced West African forces about 10%. I think this is a really dangerous policy. I think it's reckless. And they are there supporting local forces local who forces. Are fighting extremists. Yeah, and it's also it's not just sort of the CT side of the house they're building capacity for Africans to deal with with security challenges. Um and they're there at the request of African governments. And we are there in partnership with our European friends. Um 
And this has caused great anxiety amongst the global community that we may walk away from the continent. And we've done this before and it wasn't very good. So you may know, Michael, that in the 90s, we dramatically reduced our presence in Africa. And then after 9-11 and the growing CT threat, we realized actually we, we need to be back. So reset those relationships, rebuild capacity, re, um, invest in, in infrastructure. Uh, a lack of DOD presence is going to not only you know, make us seem less committed to these challenges, but there's the other effects. Our diplomats and our development officers depend on the military to get out to these hard-to-reach places. I think our analysts are going to have a harder time understanding dynamics in Africa if there's less U.S. presence in these places. So I'm, I'm really concerned. I'm elated that the Hill has stepped up. Senator Graham, Senator Coons, a number of people on the House side have said this is a bad idea, and hopefully Secretary Esper um, will decide not to do this. Yeah. And if we're not there, who fills, right. who fills exactly. the vacuum? Our, our adversaries. Yeah. Judd, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank Fascinating you. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. That was Judd Devermont. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.